The IO Collection from Any Day is here. You get 10% off your everyday order, including the new IO Collection with code Dave on cookanyday.com. Uh, we made it matte black. We're very excited about it. You should go get it because it's the best way to use your microwave. 20% off Athletic Brewing with Athletic Code Athletic Gift 20. So check out their website for the best non-alcoholic beer around. And I don't even think it's a beer. It's just a great beverage. They got Day Pack, which is a, a very light, hoppy water. And I drink Athletic Light pretty much all day. And it's, I don't know, I can drink like four of them. And it's like under 100 calories. Uh, $40 off coming to your coffee, the coffee that is, is as good as anything I think that you can make. Um, but it's for lazy people. And uh, you can get $40 off your first two orders when you visit commentercoffee.com slash Chang, 15% off East Fork Pottery by using the code Friend of Dave. And of course, when you put in Domo10, when you visit shop.momofuku.com, you put in Domo10, you can get 10% off all Momofuku good items. We've got some new chocolates out. And it's the best way to check out all of our products. But we do carry uh, many things at your local supermarket. Uh, the Kroger's, the Whole Foods, and the Targets of the world, the air-dried noodles, the Chili Crunch, etc. Thank you for that support. And of course, check out our new YouTube channel at Major Dome Media YouTube. And we got all kinds of good content up there, including holiday-themed Halloween stuff, where I have heard, because I haven't seen it yet, uh, Chris Yang made a mummy penis, I've been told, and he... he uh, Eat. By eating it, it almost looks like a culinary fellatio. I've been told. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. That's what I it's was a told. Mo- it's a mummified glizzy. It, it's quite I magnificent. Know what a gl- I don't know what a glizzy is, but I heard it's not appropriate. It's NSFW for uh, anyone under the age of 45. Congrats, Chris Ying. Good job. Good job. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Dumb Media. Thank you a lot, Tango, as always. No Chris Yang here today. And uh, you know Lee's got dad eyes. Not dead eyes, but he's got dad eyes because uh, his son is leaving the crib. And and before we began, we actually tried to record this goddamn pod for 30 minutes, but we've been having technical difficulties. It's 9.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're recording this for this Monday's pod. I just got back from New York and uh, it's technically an ass day after dark. So uh, it's late. And, uh, you know, is recording this with me. Chris Ying bailed as usual. But I, I was, I, I said before we began that, you know, has got dad eyes and you know what dad eyes are? Puffy, wary, the weight of the world. You're just tired. And I see it and I'm saying, good luck, motherfucker. Good luck, motherfucker. Because you know what it is? I said, what I, I nailed it right on the bat. I was like, uh, I bet your son is trying to crawl out of the crib and he's not sleeping that well. And he goes, bingo. Right? Yeah. Korean Wemby is uh, is growing and he's going to overcome his crib prison. And uh, well, not sure what you need I to scare do. You, you need to scare the shit out of him. All right? I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you need to scare the bejesus out of him. He's what, 15 months old, 16 months old? At this point, you know, uh, Dave Chang, child psychologist, is giving you real advice, medically backed advice here. You need to make sure that this is 
the scariest moment they he's ever experienced in his life, right? You need to scare the shit out of him. You need to make sure that your son, and this is for anybody that has a, a, a baby that's sleeping in a crib. Once they're old enough to try to sneak out of the crib, climb out of the crib, you need to scare the shit out of them. You need to buy yourself at least 12 more months. 12 more months? Yeah, 12 more months. Don't let them fucking get out of that goddamn crib. <laughs> Don't do it. Anyway, moving on. We gotta, we're going to do a three things, a slice, a Dave Shardamas, and Ask Dave. Before we do that, I, I want to talk about a couple things. And, and they, they're not exactly going to... Well, I think if you can listen in, it gives you an insight into some of the things I'm thinking about. So number one, for those that have been listening to the pod for a while, ever since we had Safi Bacall on and he had the book Loon Shots, I've been bringing up this idea of Pan Am versus American Airlines for quite some time. And for those that are listening, you'll be like, and I've heard it for the first time, you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? I, I, I tend to always try to find other parts of time in human culture, recent human culture, history, as comps to better understand the things that are happening right now. And things are crazy right now. All in every facet of culture, right? I was talking to some of my friends in, that work in fashion. I, I, was, I was talking to the great Grace Coddington as, recently as well. And she was just saying how similar a lot of the trends and and... I would say the ebb and flow of what's happening in the fashion world really does mirror what's happening in the food world. But I, I don't know if the, the case study I'm about to say makes too much sense for the food world or for any other part of culture for that matter. And I, I wanted to go a little bit deeper on, on Pan Am versus uh, American Airlines. And what I'm basically trying to say is this. I think that many restaurants that were independent, that were trying to be ambitious, that were trying to be best-in-class, award-winning, things like that, they really did fall in line with the trying to be like Pan Am Airlines. And if you don't know, Pan Am is out of business, but started in the 20s by the, the, this uh, entrepreneur, Juan Tripp, and they had the fastest jets, right? They, they always put money into having the most fabulous staff multilingual, the best looking, et cetera, et cetera. It was the, it was the shit from what I've been told, right? And it was just trying to be cool. And it went out of business because in the seventies, things got a little out of control. And this is where I feel like this is a little bit of a comp to where we're at right now in food. But Pan Am was number one. They were like Google of flying, right? They crushed from what I know and the things that I've been reading. And I've, I bought a few books and it's really dense and boring shit because who wants to read about air travel in the 70s? I, the Lord knows I don't, but I'll do anything to get a better understanding of certain things. There, there are a couple of things that are happening in the, in, the, in the context of the day. Number one is there's the beginning of deregulation of the airline industry. It was highly regulated before, but it was a deregulation beginning in 1978. You also had the uh, inflation. You also had high gas prices. You also had a growing massive recession, right? 
These are sort of similar economic conditions to where we're at right now. And while we don't have deregulation, right? And what happened with the airline industry is things got super fucking competitive, right? Because everyone started getting in and the market share for Pan Am disappeared. Um, just being the coolest wasn't mad, didn't, didn't like work so much anymore. I'm, I'm doing my best to sort of distill this in, 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 in how I understand it. And I think for a long time, not myself, not just myself, but if you were so quote unquote a foodie, if you cared about going out to the great restaurants, and, and I think there's two categories of great restaurants in this regard, right? You have modern restaurants, right? And modern is anything that is quote unquote molecular gastronomy. And I don't want to say molecular gastronomy is foams and stuff. Is anyone that adopted anything new that was trying to push the envelope? And there's many ways to push the envelope. You can have someone like Pierre Gagnier and Passard, I think, in that same boat with a Heston Blumenthal and a Fran Adria, et cetera, et cetera. As long with a Danielle Balloud and a Eric Repair and a Thomas Keller, et cetera. And on the other hand, you have restaurants like Houston's and Hillstones. You name it. Restaurants of that genre, right? That never get reviewed ever, right? They're never trying to be the coolest, but they're always dependable. People love them and they're always busy and they make people happy. And yes, you have fast food and everything like that, but that's what I want to talk about, right? And I, I choose flying as an example because there's a lot of ways to get to another destination. Bus, cycle, walk, right? Hitchhike, boat. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. Some cheap, more expensive. Flying is probably the most expensive way. And that's why I feel like it's a comp to food because, you know, flying is not cheap. Eating out is a luxury, ultimately at a certain price point. And there's different ways you can spend that money. So there's, I feel like the past 20 years, there's just been this influx of so many people entering this business. There's no more information asymmetry. There's really hard to find any culinary arbitrage moments. It's just a lot of competition. And when that happens, all the things that normally happen with a lot of competition happen. Some good, some bad. Ultimately, deregulation in the airline industry made it better for traveler prices went down and it became more democratic ultimately in terms of pricing and people could travel a lot more a lot more freely it wasn't just for the 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 super super wealthy but i want to go back to american airlines because i feel like i i think where i would like to focus some of my efforts is trying to understand what american airlines did so you had this guy bob crandall that was a ceo that came from bloomingdale's and he did two things that were really revolutionary that caused American Airlines to go from one of the lowest and worst airlines to one of the best. And that was creating, yeah, this uh, computer system that he did not invent for the reservation as his predecessor, but he implemented it in a way that was not implemented before called Sabre, which is still used today. And he outsourced that. It was like open source for travel agencies to use. So anybody could make a reservation. And he was the first person to create frequent flyer program. 
those were not cool. That is not having a the new 777 jet. That is not having, you know, whatever that a lot of the other airlines were doing. It was not sexy. It was not cool, but it was very substantial and pragmatic and useful. And our, you know, ultimately both changed the w- way people travel, but one's in business and one was able to overcome difficulties in the, in the late seventies and thrive. I think there's a lot to learn there. And I keep on going back to that because I think a lot of those macroeconomic conditions, a lot of the things that were happening in that time, while they're not exact mirrors, I do think have some kind of parallel to how I view the culinary world. And and that's all I'm going to say about that, right? Like, it's not exact, right? Fine dining isn't going anywhere. But I think there's a shift in how I would like to travel and how I would like to view things. And I think there's a lot of things we can learn from there. I could be dead wrong. I don't think so. And it's another thing I wanted to talk about, and then we'll get into the pod proper. And it's another difference. It's a little bit more of a, you know, more, more, more of a, I don't even know how to describe it. A way of thinking about food, and we've talked about it before, and it's a little, it's a little bit of repetitive of what I just talked about, Pan Am versus American Airlines. But it's, it's this idea of eating versus dining, right? I think there's many kinds of dining, right? And I think on the highest end of the spectrum, you have avant-garde and super progressive. So in Los Angeles, you have something like Jordan Kahn's restaurant, Vespertif, right? Which is an experience. I think you should go if you can. It's not something that I think like people want to go back all the time, but I think everyone should go there. If you're in the business, it's important. I think it's a widely important restaurant. You have a restaurant in like Copenhagen called The Alchemist. I don't want to eat there, right? All the time, like a six hour dinner. And there's restaurants like that. I think they exist and that has transformed over the years, right? And, you know, I think Noma is a perfect example of some that it's a little bit more populist of that, right? So I think. As you get a little bit closer to the center, it's merged with a little bit more populist sentiments. And there's nothing really populist about Noma. And there's nothing populist about Fat Duck in, in England by Hester Blumenthal. There's nothing really populist about El Bouilly. But those are all restaurants that were at the highest end. In America, we never really had that other than maybe, maybe a Linea, maybe a, a WD-50. Uh, and I'm talking a lot of inside baseball for people that are maybe, maybe not always into food. And please, you can send us an email at askdave at majordomo media to be like, Hey, can you clarify any of this? I'm happy to do that. All right. But basically, I want to say like, there's dining, right? That's dining and that's like going out and you're feeding your mind, right? It's feeding your mind over your gullet. And as you get a little bit closer to the, the middle on the spectrum, on dining you're it's less about feeding your mind and and like the sweet spot really is feeding your mind and feeding your your stomach right and that's that it's a nice balance between the two and those are restaurants like le bernadette is a perfect example in new york perfect example 
I love that fucking restaurant, right? Restaurants that are expensive, that might be cafeteria for some, because it is in New York, but for the most part, it's aspirational and it's really comforting and approachable, but also exquisite and full of technique and, and finesse and expertise and perfection. And then it's like, you, you, you get on the other end, you get to just eating, right? On the other end of the spectrum, that's just fast food. That's a burger, right? That, again, when you go f- from the other end of the spectrum towards eating to dining, you get that middle. You get the H- Hillstone Houston's. You get a lot of Italian restaurants. Pizza. You know, things like that. All of it is good. And there's nothing on, there's nothing that's easy on any of those spectrum, on, on that spectrum. It's all difficult to operate. I just, I feel like with where we're coming out in the pandemic and it's always cyclical, it always changes. We're just at a point right now where we, it's not a surprise. We've talked about this before. If you look at any food magazine, periodical, whatever, it's all about comfort. It's about comfort with the trappings of, of potentially maybe some celebrity, some ambiance, the trappings of luxury or, or like, Something that is experiential. I, I don't know, but we're, we're, we're in this phase right now, right? And it's, it's like we count, it's like out of anything when you move out of a phase. And that's where I think that we're at right now. And it's, it's always going to move. It's always on the move. And I just think it's important for people that listen to this podcast. And if you listen to this podcast, there's a good chance you're really into food to start to meditate for your own purpose. What is eating to you and what is dining? And I think we all need to meditate a lot more on that. Neither is better than the other. But we should have a better understanding of what that that pendulum looks like for, for all of us. And I think if we start to see that we don't have any dining, right? That's a problem. It's one of the reasons why A.O. Scott retired from writing for the New York Times. If you haven't read his sort of his obit to his career, it was the same thing. You know, there's not enough quote unquote movies that were the equivalent of dining. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit lost talking about this, but it's definitely top of mind and I'm thinking about it. I'm trying to get a better understanding of it. I do know there's a lot of people asking me questions. All that matters is that we're we're thinking about it and we're moving forward and understand that everything everything's going to be all right. Um, well, that being said, we're going to take a break and we're going to get into three things. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. 
When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right. You know, has given me the task to think about three things that every beginning cook should practice. Well, I, I, I put down history. And I, I don't say that's just culinary history. I, I'm a big fan. Like if my kids get old enough to go to college, when they get old enough to college, I, I think I'm a big, big proponent for them to go to liberal arts education, right? Because I do believe in get, having a diversity of thought to be a well-rounded thinker to be exposed to a lot of different things. I believe unequivocally that my education was instrumental in my success because it's the same thing, right? I've had a lot of people that have worked for us that only went to the best schools and then they get stuck in that bubble. I think that if you're cooking, the only thing you know is cooking. That's actually a detriment to you. And so education, number one, it's all education, but it's stuff that you're going to have to read and you're going to have to study. And it's not just about the culinary history. You have to know culinary history. You Let me reiterate this. You have to know culinary history. That means reading cookbooks. That means reading the wealth of what's online. That means following the, the, the people that know what the fuck they're talking about, the good eaters, the good diners, people like Little Meg on Instagram, um, Luxie, like there's a lot of good eaters. They're, they used to have blogs, but they're like, they're all there. And then you got to study the chefs. You got to study what's in vogue. You got to study the techniques. You got to study where their CV was. You got to understand the overlap of different trends and styles and, and where they picked up certain ideas from working at different kitchens. And it's not just what happened the past 10 years, what happened since the beginning of Nouveau Cuisine. And we're just talking about like basically the start of European cuisine, right? That's a lot. Just that. In, in and of itself, that's a lot, right? If you would just want to start about the French canon and what came to America, we're not talking about anything that happened in South America, Mexico, Asia, right? It's an endless quest of studying and, and staying relevant. And once you stop, it's going to fucking, you're, it's very hard to catch back up. You have to constantly study. I think I'm always surprised when I speak to younger chefs and younger cooks at their, not their sub, but like they're not students of the game. You know what I mean? And listen, Maybe it'll happen later. But you need to know what the fuck happened and what came before you. And that history is massive. We're talking about techniques. We're talking about recipes. We're talking about different schools. We're talking about just the culinary side. I'd also suggest understanding history as well. All the flavors that you know today happen mostly because of fucking war, famine, poverty, slavery, some terrible genocide, something fucking shitty happened 
in the world and helped create a lot of the cuisine that we know it today. And I find that studying history is, is crucially important to understanding how to come up with flavors. So when you understand this and you have a basic idea of it, it allows you to be better at making dishes when you take from other places because it's always taking, but you got to take with respect and you have to try to be respectful as possible. So that's how you can footnote these things. So it's a, you got to study. Man. I think the number one thing for younger cooks is study everything possible related to food. But when I say things are related to food, that's global history at large. Two, taste. Taste fucking everything. You need to develop your palate. You need to, you need to, you need to know what everything tastes like. You need to know what, let's just think about an orange. Let's just talk about an orange real quick. You need to know what an old orange tastes like. You need to know what an old orange that isn't dry tastes like. You need to know what an old orange that is dry tastes like. You need to know a orange that is not ripe tastes like. You need to know different kinds of oranges taste like. You need to know what oranges taste like during different parts of the season. You need to know what oranges taste like from California to Florida. You need to know what oranges taste like in other parts of the world. You need to know what, you know, yuzu tastes like in Japan and yuja tastes like in Korea. You need to know a lot of these things. And we're just talking about citrus, but if we're just talking about oranges, there's, I don't know, a couple thousand varieties out there. It's endless. But if again, if we're just talking about like a navel orange, going back to that, and all the iterations of that that you could taste, you got to know every one of those. You got to know when you, when you reach for a lemon to season a dish, you got to know how does that taste. And you're going to need to know that that day on that day of that lemon, when you use it in a vinaigrette or using it to balance out a dish, it may need an extra di- extra drop, right? You may need to add a little bit. You may need to change the vinegar to a, a sherry vinegar instead of a rice wine vinegar, whatever. But he has like, everything is a game of chess, right? Everything is some kind of maneuver you got to unlock when you're trying to work with food. If you're trying to be the very fucking best, you got to be in complete command of all of the fucking ingredients and how everything fucking tastes in the kitchen at hand. And you can only get that by tasting everything from a, from when you're, from when you're just starting out. You got to taste the good and the very bad. And I honestly, I got to say, I don't think I see enough younger cooks, people that are just starting out. It has nothing to do with age. It is people that are just starting out in the business, cooking professionally, seriously. I just don't see them tasting enough shit, man, at all, right? A lot of it is like, oh, I know what that's going to taste like. You don't know. You have no fucking idea. And the last thing that I, I, I think that you probably need to focus on is learning how to communicate. You need to learn how to write, right? Writing skills are crucial. You need to learn how to write an email. You need to learn how to answer a phone. Right? You probably need to learn social media skills, how to edit videos, right? You need to I I I I I just think 
every way you can communicate is important. You need to learn how to be presentable. When I say communication, it's not just the, the way you you speech or words. I think communication is also how you present yourself, right? You need to, how you look as a cook is representative of who you are and is also a sign of communication. It's, it's, do you keep a neat uniform? Are your nails clean, right? These little fucking things, right? These are the things that you communicate to your chef. It's how you are visibly communicating to other people. I think all of that really it ties to a healthy dose of empathy. It's how you perceive the world and how you want to how you want to be seen as well. And I think that makes a big difference in the kitchen when you have an idea of how you are perceived and how other people might see something. So I'd say the fourth, probably the most important thing is empathy. And I always say this to my own cooks, even though it was just three, I would say if you're focusing on just taste. I think people don't understand the miracle of being able to make a dish taste good and knowing that it's going to taste good to somebody else. You, When you make a dish, it's something magical that happens when you can cook something and you know, it's not just confident, you know that it's going to taste good. And it's also because maybe you know the person you're cooking it for. And you're able to dial it in even more. The fact that you know this person that you're cooking for and you're able to, it doesn't have to be a loved one. It could be a repeat customer. It could be somebody that's walking in. And it could be somebody that you've seen eating the first three courses and you get a better idea of who they are. It's, it's like playing a game of poker. I always view that, especially in our open kitchen. Every, every dish and every customer is a game of poker. And I'm reading their hands and their towels. And when I say empathy, all of these little tools and twists of how you communicate, I think are important because if you're able to visualize and if you're able to think outside yourself, if you're able to think how somebody else might taste a dish, that's, that's the next level shit. And, and I, and being able to make a dish and know that somebody else will know that it tastes good. I just don't have the words to express how amazing that is. And, and, then, and then to maybe tailor that so somebody else that you know can taste it in a different way, but get the same desired result. It's amazing. Anyway, those are my four things I think about. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. 
When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. So this happens a lot. And I, I'm going to give you a story from third grade Dave Chang. I had just moved to schools. I went to Chesterbrook to Spring Hill. And it was like my third day at school. And a girl, one of my new classmates, made me cupcakes. She made them for me. I think about this moment a lot. And I tasted it. And it was so bad. It was so bad that I had to like hide by the, you know, you know, there's sinks in your, like your classroom. I had to hide by it and find a way to like spit it out because it tasted so bad. And you may laugh and be like, oh, you're being a jerk. But I wasn't the only kid that day that all thought it tasted terrible. We all did. Right. And it wasn't just because they, it tasted like salt instead of sugar. It's like, it was like four ingredients that were wrong. Were in it. It tasted so bad. It was honestly still as day as a, as like a Proustian Madeleine moment. The opposite. It's one of the most distinct food memories I have for something that tastes terrible. And I knew that I couldn't say like, blah, ugh. So he's like, dude, this tastes fucking terrible. So I had to hide it. So I think the, the kindest thing to do, if you taste something from somebody that tastes terrible, even if they're a professional, we're not even talking about non-professional, the best way is to stop, to, to, to like try to put it down and say, great, tastes great. But, um, you know, you know, my, my friend James Murphy, and it's not a name job, but like one of the reasons why I, I, I do love him so much is he hates compliments, right? After a show, if somebody compliments him, he's like, well, they fucking hate you, right? It's like, I'm not looking for compliments. I can lie, right? We all lie. They're all white lies. We say it all the time. I've seen it. I've been on the receiving end a lot of it when, I asked somebody, how's everything? And they said, oh, everything's great. But I'm pretty sure they didn't love it. I'm not good enough to determine if someone's telling me the truth when they tell me the truth. But when somebody tells me they don't like it, I know they're not lying. All right? That's why I, I tend to embrace criticism a lot more because there's, all, there's less, there's still things you need to sort of sift through and sort out. But you know what the floor is. Right. And that's why constructive criticism, I always look for it. And if somebody's like, hey, that was really great, but I didn't like this, this, and this, I'd, I'd rather hear that. I'd r much rather hear praise, trust me. But I don't always know if it's true or not. Because we've all tasted something that somebody's made for us and be like, no, that's great. It's really good. But it's not. You know what I mean? You can't lie. You can't lie. When you taste something that somebody makes for you, whether it's a loved one or a friend, and you have to be like, it, 
you you know that it, t- it could taste fine, right? This is the difference. I'm drinking soup. Somebody makes me soup. I'm like, it's like, you know, making me soup. I'm at his house. Oh, this is, this is good. It's great. This tastes great. I'm giving them a B plus. I'm giving them a thumbs up. Great. Internally, I'm like, that's okay. It's just okay. We do it all the time. It's okay. I, I, I mean, I don't think I have ever, you know, in a non-professional kitchen. I mean, in a professional kitchen, I've seen it all, how bad something tastes, right? I think I've worked at trying to get better at providing constructive criticism. You know, the younger versions of me were clearly not the best versions of me. But you want rather give constructive criticism in a calm way than uh, lying, I think. So going back to that third grade, I, I, I can't remember her name, but, but that was the worst tasting thing I remember ever. As a child. Oh, and I didn't know what girl. to do. Nobody, no, nobody's ever made something for me. And I had to turn around and like try to spit it out. But I remember that everyone was trying to find a way to like not eat it. Yeah, She probably spent happens. her whole night make, baking those cupcakes, man. Well, she should have tried harder. All right, let's take a break. You know, you know, I don't know how much we're going to win people over with the Dave Shadamas uh, Wemby of chefs here. I don't think people care about Wemba Yama. Because he's on the Spurs? I can just tell by watching Amazon Thursday Night Football Prime audience numbers that no one gives a shit about basketball compared to football. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Amazon crushes. That's all I'm going to say. I think the America cares mostly about football. Very little about basketball compared. Comparable. But um, yeah, you know, if you don't know, Victor Wembanyama was like born from an early age. He was groomed to be this prodigy, to be the greatest basketball player of all time. Right? From he forced taught himself how to speak English. He's done everything right. Even the team he played on in France last year was to groom him for the NBA this year. He's on the Spurs. Clearly, the NBA rigged that whole fucking thing because, I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. But I think Yuno's wanting me to give some kind of prediction, all right? Because he's seven foot four. He's got like a 12 foot wingspan. You know, he's, he's a genetic freak. He could do things that nobody's ever done. And the reality is this, and I've always said this, there's no genius in cooking. It doesn't exist. There's no Wemanyama. There's no prodigy. It doesn't exist. There are people that are unequivocally more talented than others. There are people that have better knife skills. There are people that have better flow. There are people that have better movement. There are people that you know, it's a very athletic thing cooking on the line too. There are people that are just better, right, at producing things. But it's all raw talent that needs to be harnessed and honed and shaped. 
you got to work your fucking ass off to turn any of that raw talent into something that is actually fruitful. And, and anything that is a natural gift, I feel like doesn't really extend as a comp from say sports to cooking because cooking, the one reason, one of the things I love most about professional cooking, especially professional cooking is that hard work is the great equalizer in the kitchen. Somebody may be more talented. Somebody may have more years. Somebody may have uh, uh, more experience. But it's all about all the hands of poker. You can play, right? If I see more hands of poker, doesn't mean I'm a better poker player than you, but I've seen more shit than you. You know, and like, uh, I, I feel that's the same thing, man. Like, if you're more dedicated to it, and if you grind it out more, if you spend more hours doing it, than somebody that's more talented than you, over the long run, the tortoise wins that race every fucking time. So, um, yeah, there's no Picasso. It's not like art. It's not like music. It's also one of the reasons why, I mean, I feel bad. I've had a lot of thoughts about Flynn McGarity, that 17-year-old chef. I wish... I wish things started a little bit differently than him. I think it, it starts off with a lot of the stuff that I talked about to get go. It's like, you need life experiences. You need to live life a little bit. You need to study things to be great at it. And that's why I would suggest anybody to not go to cooking school, but to go to a four-year college and learn how to communicate and to study and learn history and all these other things and to live life. That to me is more important than anything that's a natural skill set. And let me assure you, there are people that are literally physically gifted at cooking. They are. But unlike the NBA, where genetic talent will actually oftentimes, you know, allow you to have an advantage over somebody that works hard, I don't see that to be the case in cooking. That being said, I don't know when, when someone asks me what the next generation that's going to be really good is, I, I mean, the only person that comes to mind right now, when I think about someone that's doing the right way, I was watching some YouTube clip and it was like Kobe Bryant talking about Pete Clay Thompson. I love Clay. I don't, I mean, I mean, Clay's not playing great right now, but he's older, had some serious injuries on the, on the, on the Warriors. But there was a story like, you know, Clay was, they were on the on the Olympic team or something like that. And Clay was in the gym at like 11 p.m. And Kobe said, you know, on his retirement tour, you know, when I see younger players working out at like 11 p.m., 12 p.m., you know, it makes me feel good that like the game's in a good place. When I see people like Josh Nyland at at St. Pete's and he's just opened up a place in Singapore, like he 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 does it the right way. And he's young, man. He's still young. But there's a lot of people like Josh out there that have respect for the craft and they're mature beyond their years. So I I just don't know who they are right now. Right? Maybe um, man, Calvert. It was the chef at Bailon. He opened up in Tokyo recently. I don't know. 
I haven't gone out enough the past three years to 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 younger ambitious restaurants. So I think I'd have to revisit that in another three or four years. But the talent's there for sure. Does that answer your question, you know? To some degree, yeah, absolutely. I think what you said about hard work being the great equalizer is something I've always admired about uh, people who operate restaurants. You know, you, you just see it. And I think, you know, when I was a writer, I would always go back of house and I would be way more curious about what's going on back there than I was about what's getting on my plate. Since just see the motion and the hustle and like, man, you've practiced that move like fucking 5,000 times. Like, already like and just seeing that i think that's where i kind of understood like this is a hustle sport like this is a you have to put in the time sport so yeah that was always something that i i'll I'll give you an example of two chefs that are completely different rasmus at geranium which is a three michelin star one of the best restaurants in the world in copenhagen his contemporary is Rene redzepi of noma i mean rasmus is fucking Badass. Not a knock. It's too precise for me. It's not as free-flowing artistically for me. And there's many people that love geranium way more than Noma. A lot of people do, right? When you're sort of, it's like, you know, splitting hairs there to some degree. But Rasmus is like, one of the most technically perfect and most gifted cooks of all time. He won a bronze, a silver, and a gold in the Boku store. It's pretty intense. It's crazy what he's done. And I think he's like the same age as Renee. And, and I, I, I mean, the funny thing is, like, Renee's a super gifted cook, clearly. But he had to work at it. Renee's super good at cooking. They're just different, right? Like, Rasmus would be like, um, Tim Duncan, you know, and, and, and Renee's like Magic Johnson. They're just two different fucking ways of looking at it. But Renee's ability to, you know, what make, if you, if you ask me what makes Renee so great, there's a ferocity and intensity in the pursuit of what he wants and a, just a curiosity that is unquenched. You just, you can, it's almost never satisfied. The quest to always be better. Like that is a, that drive is in almost everyone that's at the top tier. There's no question, but Renee's got it in spades. But again, we've talked about this before. I think what makes Renee better is to be able to produce an abstract idea and to translate it into reality. I don't think anybody's even better. It's like, yeah, Renee's like, I don't like how Luca plays. So I, I don't know. It's like, to me, like, Renee is like a Magic Johnson, you know? Just a facilitator and making the team better and can do shit that nobody else can do. So, I don't know. You know, if we just talked about, let's just focus on Amer- in America, right? Who would be, give me, a, give me a, a basketball player and I'll try to give you the comp. All right. Um, how about Patrick Beverly, who's like the hustle, grit, like plays defense. It's going to pick you up 94 feet. That's, that's too, come on, dude. 
<laughs> All right, who's LeBron? Who's LeBron? <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't know if there's a LeBron. Right? I don't know. I mean, they would all probably, I'd say. That's a good question. I'd probably have to say Keller, potentially. As much as I don't want to. You know? Um, He's a fucking really good cook and he's done it all. You know? And he's built a business. He's actually... I mean, people don't realize how expensive the fucking real estate that he owns is. I mean, Jesus Christ. Who else? Who's Steph? Who's Steph Curry? Change the game. I don't know. That's a, that's a good some one. blind spots. Defense isn't great. You know, like, maybe it isn't, but it's so overwhelmingly good at this thing that it changed the game. Chris Bianco. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Who's. All right. You already got Tim Duncan. <laughs> Who's uh, Charles Barkley? I think probably me. That's what I was just about to say. Isn't that you? <laughs> probably. Probably me. I never got four stars. I never got three mission stars. I never won the championship. Yeah. <laughs> Ate too much. Too much of a bet fucking mouth. Yeah. But America loves you, Dave. You're the most beloved personality. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This game sucks. Let's take a break. <laughs> All right. What do we got here? Ask Dave. Yep. So this is from Eric. I'll read this. I'll read it here. Spain's worst tourist traps and top five Spanish foods. Hello. I am from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I've been there. I dated a girl from from Edmonton. I forgot about that. And we'll be going to Madrid and Barcelona in January. It'll be my first time in Europe traveling for delicious food. Dave was one of the first people I heard talking about Spanish cuisine back in the early 2010s. Shout out to Mind of a Chef. So I wanted to ask, what was the worst tourist trap foods are in Spain? And what are the top five? I'm going to say sangria. I don't think I've ever had sangria. With the exception when I was a college tourist in Spain. Number two. Patatas bravas. I, I feel like that is what tourists eat. I don't think I've ever had patatas bravas uh, outside of being a tourist. tourist in Spain. <laughs> but they're delicious. I'm not saying they're not. It's like, can a, like, can a hot dog be delicious? I, I, I don't, you know. I'd also say tortillas. There are a lot of bad tortilla españolas and a lot of fucking bad tortillas. They're just, they're just, a lot of them. And, and I would also say tapas bars in general. There's a lot of tapas bars that are just for tourist traps. They're, they're just, they just are. I'm the furthest thing from an expert. I'm just giving you my, my opinion quick. 
Another thing that you see at restaurants that cater to tourists are gazpacho. There's a lot of bad gazpacho out there. And the number one scorching number one worst tourist trap food playas. I'm I'm surprised. I don't even know if it got edited out when I was just like, you know, criticizing paella, but it's like all these fucking yahoos before I left Discord talking about fucking Carnoli rice or Arborio rice or they don't even know. They don't know. There are rice varietals in Spain. There is good paella. But I'm saying some of the worst paella is made for tourists. And I've had them. I've had them. I think the most probably commonly made paella is not paella Valencia. It's probably the, the squid ink paella. That's got tourists written all over it, for sure. I think more squid ink paella is made for tourists than any other group. When nobody, nobody in Spain eats squid ink paella. That, that's just a fact. All right, what are the top five Spanish foods I could eat right now? Top five things off the top of my head. Number one is jamón, for sure. I think two would be a tie between CJ and some sherry, some they drink a lot of uh, cider there. And I think the sherry bar, so they're just sherry there is just fantastic. And as, as bad as there are tortillas in Spain, there are some fucking awesome tortillas as well. And I love tortilla in like a, and just like a, in like a, as a sandwich that's like so delicious. Uh, and I probably say all the canned foods they have in Spain. I'm probably going to go more than five. I'd say as a pinchos, I'd say a gilda or the anguilas, the the eels. But I could eat like 25 gildas right now. I think I could potato chips in Spain too. And all the the the, the, the crunchy the crunchy bread thing they have is good. They got this crunchy bread thing when you eat ham and beer is very good. I don't, I don't know. It's like the same things like the Italians eat, but it's just like on all the bar snacks they, uh, they have there. Another the thing that gets, bread? no, that's Pande Cristal. That's another, they're like little, little like nuggets of like cracker, cracker bread things. Um, okay. I mean, really, I think the thing I eat the most is ham. I just fucking eat a lot of ham, like a lot, a lot of ham, a lot of olives. Yeah, a lot of ham, a lot of olives. That's what I want. I mean, I can literally just eat ham fucking every meal there. Yeah. Ham and bread and and, and beer and, and, and cider. Yeah, that sounds good. Honestly, I just want to go to San Sebastian. That's not really, you know. Barcelona would be good too. Any anything off of plancha, I'm I'm down for. All right. Take a break. 
We're partnering with Audi on our new segment, Progress You Can Feel. The fully electric Audi Q8 e-tron brings true craftsmanship and stunning performance to your journey. With fast charging capabilities and impeccable design, from the craftsmanship to the performance to the looks and the sounds, Audi knows that how we get there matters. So here's a story from how I got here. So in college, I had this professor, and I've talked to him about him before. His name was Howard DeLong, and I took just about every class possible, including advanced logic. But I took a bunch of philosophy of religion, philosophy of evolution. By far, one of the most influential people in my life. And one of the things he liked to do, and regardless of any of his classes that I took, was to always take something that you had some data on from recent memory, right? And the reason he did that was it allowed you to empathize. It allows you to connect to a group of people another country, another place and time that you would not be able to empathize with whatsoever, right? And what I mean by that is if we were going to study religion, a cult or something from 2,000 years ago, before we would do that, we would maybe study cults of the past 25, 30 years because we have a lot of data on that. And the interesting thing was if we studied a recent religion, it better prepared us to study an ancient religion. And we would do that almost at the same time because it gave us insights to how we would be able to think an ancient religion was understood many years ago because human nature doesn't change. Culture does, but our brains are hardwired in the same way it was many millennia ago. And that may seem a very esoteric way of me talking about something. Uh, and how that could relate to me cooking and how uh, I think about creatively even doing these podcasts. If you've just been listening to the top of this podcast, I was talking about Pan Am Airlines and American Airlines. I still think in this manner because it gets me better. It gets me better prepared to understand things that I may not normally comprehend. It, it allows me to understand things in a comparison that better prepares me, more or less, right? And and it has been crucial to how I think. And I'll, I'm going to explain how this has been crucial to the development in creation of menus. Being able to empathize, being able to think outside myself, being able to compare myself to a group of people from, again, a thousand years ago or halfway around the world was because I can able, I, I'm now able to relate to something that I was not able to before. I can now imagine what it was like, right? So if I study how when I moved to Korea, right, that shock, or when I study and I think about the feelings I had when I moved to Japan, not knowing anybody, I can imagine when my great-grandfather moved to San Francisco in 1926, right? I can imagine what he might feel. I can imagine the first hot dog he might have tasted. I can imagine the first, you know, hamburger he probably tasted, the first slice of pizza he first tasted. I can imagine these things. Now, if I can imagine that, I can imagine now, like, what if my great-grandfather, instead of going to San Francisco, moved to Charleston, South Carolina, right? And instead of moving there, he moved there with his wife. And would they 
use grits? Would they use smoky bacon? Would they use bourbon? Would he be tasting these things? And would he try to integrate some of those ingredients in how he ate or especially if he moved there, right? Like I, I can now relate that to when my mom moved to America in the late 60s, how she had to use American ingredients as facsimiles for ingredients that were Korean, right? That were not Korean whatsoever, right? So she would use American ingredients and try to make Korean food from them. All of this really was planted by me studying Howard DeLong and learning how to, again, empathize with groups of people I may never have even met. Um, and it allowed me to think about creating original tasting dishes, right? So when I opened up Momofuku in 2004, the idea wasn't for me to make facsimile authentic Japanese ramen. Because to me, if I truly understand a group of people, if I truly live there as I did, and you understand what, what the culture is about, what food culture is about, and not just in the Japan, but say Italy, it's, it's about freshness. It's what's local. It's what's best. It's that immediacy to the things that are around you. Then maybe why would I want to get, you know, all of this fish dried and katsubushi bonito from Japan to make stocks, right? I can get that same smoky element from bacon, which is why because of Howard DeLong, I started a relationship with Alan Benton and Smoky Mountain Country Hams in Tennessee. And I started to use that smoky hickory smoked bacon as a flavor ingredient for our noodle soups. That is a really crazy way of me explaining how I got there, but it's absolutely true because of the classes that I learned in college. And I, if I didn't have that way of thinking, there's no way I would have been able to connect the dots with Tennessee bacon with Japanese katsubushi and ramen here in America. And I think about it all the time. As you can listen to this, to this day, I still think about it. So there, there's a lot of things that happen that make no sense in the moment. And you can only connect the dots later. And uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for, for having that great teacher in Howard DeLong. And I'm grateful that I'm able to think about things in a way that makes sense to me. And hopefully tastes delicious to you. There's progress, and then there's progress you can feel. The Audi Q8 e-tron is just one of the Audi EV family preparing for a future that is exhilarating, exciting, and thrilling. Audi knows that how we get there matters, and they have the electrified vehicles to make the journey, well, electrifying. Audi, progress you can feel. Learn more at AudiUSA.com slash electric. All right, guys. Thank you. Give us five stars. The next podcast I want to talk about one time, man. I was in New York for a very brief time and I, I, I wanted to go visit Wiley at, at, at his, at his, at his pizza shop, stretch pizza. I wanted to visit Rich at Teresi. I wanted to visit Kwame, but like, you know, as I mentioned before, it just, it doesn't, I just wanted to sleep, which I did. And I only had two meals. I had a couple slices of Scar's pizza. And I had a couple 99 cent sliced pizzas as well. I was trying to load up and I had one ton made. Anyway, that's a, a story for the next pod. Give us five stars.